In the Rosh Hashanah Torah portion, every year, we read how Sarah and Hagar play out the drama of victimization. Sarah is already suffering from the trauma of being drafted into the king of Egypt's harem with Avraham's consent. And now sometime later, she is being afflicted by the maidservant Hagar as Hagar lords over her, having given birth to the master's son. With Yitzchak now born, Sarah in turn victimizes Hagar, insisting she and Ishmael are cast out. Avraham consents after consulting God. And God seems strangely unperturbed. After all, God has promised both Yitzchak and Ish- that both Yitzchak and Ishmael will or perhaps can become great nations regardless. If the notion of God's promises here, making everything okay, are lost on you, you are not alone. They are lost on Sarah and Hagar as well. The idea that it's all going to turn out all right, they're going to, they have a promise that they'll be a great nation. It all gets lost in the process of getting their sons their due, which sounds like a cry for justice, but is tinged with revenge. In the process, the possibilities of the future are clouded from view as they focus on the present. Hagar, alone with her son in the wilderness, admits defeat. She forfeits her agency, ready to die, and her child, waiting for a rescuer. I want you to think about whether a rescuer comes or not. A messenger of God shows up, and rather than rescue Hagar and Ishmael, asks Hagar, Malach, what is it you have? The grace shown to Hagar is not a gift of water to rescue her, and it's not revenge on Sarah. It's not restoration to her old position. All the grace consists is in seeing that all along she had water. What do you have? The water is there. What she did with it, what she would do with it, with what she had, was up to her. God had told her that her son would be a great nation, but it seems like they have to create it themselves. When one is in a state of victimization, one is too reactive to see the signs and means of creating a future. When one is in the process of creating a future, however, one experiences signs, experiences serendipities and synchronicities. One sees the water. Seems like the extra grace she got was see that what you already have. When we are leaving a place of victimization, And seeing the place of promise, of God's direction, we see the water. We notice signs. We are gifted with serendipities and synchronicities. Victimization stories abound in the Torah, but none so elaborate as the Joseph saga, the longest individual life epic in the Torah. Torah is his fa- Joseph is his father's favorite and his dreams of a future in which he plays a special role. His brothers nearly murder him, throw him into a pit, sell him into slavery, break their father's heart with the false news of his death, and so on and so forth. He's then falsely accused of attempted rape by the master's wife and is thrown into the prison dungeon called conveniently the pit. Finally, the ascent begins. From there, he slowly rises to become the chief steward of Egypt, 
Despite being a despised Hebrew, he runs and saves the country for Pharaoh. Much of these later chapters of Genesis show in detail how Joseph uses his power to seemingly victimize his brothers for each and every step of their victimization of him. The rabbis call this midah keneged midah, measure for measure. They must suffer for each step they made him suffer. He falsely accuses them of theft, planting on them ill-gotten gains, giving them karma for the pieces of silver they hid on themselves from selling him. He forces them to return to their father minus a son, promising that they are not lying this time about the son's disappearance. Karma for what they did to him, having to experience watching their father sink even deeper in complete despair. Many of the rabbis see these steps as Joseph giving his brothers a chance to do tshuva for each transgression they did to him. It's a great gift. Getting revenge in such a way that you give someone a way to do tshuva. That's a very nice way of saying that he is a benign persecutor, giving them the experience of what it's like to be victims. The only problem with this very logical and persuasive plot analysis is that the text never says this is happening. In fact, it's interesting. One time he has a chance to get revenge, for example, on the woman who has put him into prison for a false accusation. He doesn't reach out for a rescuer in Potiphar himself. He doesn't reach out with accusations against her to have her punished. He just keeps going forward. Nachmanides, Moshe ben Nachman, lived in Spain in the 12th century, through persecution ended up moving to Israel. He points out that every step we interpret as Joseph giving the brothers a taste of comeuppance in order to give them the gift of teshuvah and self-betterment actually makes much more sense as Joseph trying to make his dreams come true. Remember them, the dreams? As Nachmanides puts it, a dream sent from God, maybe even a promise given by God, as to Sarah and Hagar. It doesn't automatically come true. God is implanting a vision of what can be created through human agency. When one does, God partners with you. You realize what you have, malach, to create it with. And the synchronicities and, the, and happen. And you're in relationship with God. The energy flows. Nachmanides points out that Joseph explains his actions to his brothers at the end of Genesis. He's asked to explain the entire saga so far, and he takes half a sentence. He tells them, because it was my mission to save lives. Nothing more. Each step we interpret as karmic revenge was really merely, as Nachmanides points out, a necessary step to get the whole family to schlep themselves to Egypt so their lives could be saved from cataclysmic famine that Joseph knew to be happening. To the very, very end of Breshit, Joseph's brothers don't believe any of it. They are sure that he is their persecutor as payback for their persecution of him, and that at any moment he's going to kill them. As Genesis ends, he looks at them with profound disappointment that they cannot see the larger and simpler truth. The Joseph saga and the Hagar saga reveals a structure and elucidation familiar to those who engage in transactional and systems counseling, made famous in Stephen Karpman's The Drama Triangle. And I just want to tell you what that triangle is because it changes my life. 
changes my life like the Torah changes my life. And it's a little bit of a lot to take in, and I'm going to do the super short version of it. So I'm asking you to try to keep it in mind, see, see what you can take from it, and then I'll try to apply it to our lives. According to Cartman, we find ourselves in drama, and we find comfort in drama, and we find comfort in the drama triangle. We learn it from our families, and in it we grow up as one of three positions in the triangle. There's persecutor, there's victim, and there's rescuer. And you don't have to stay in the same role. But it's kind of like, I guess you can't call it square dancing. It's triangle dancing. If you move spots, then someone else has to take your spot, and someone has to take that spot. Persecutor, victim, rescuer. A persecutor disparages other people's worth, criticizes, judges, hurts, punishes, blames. It's your fault. It's your fault the project at work didn't work out. It's your fault we had to return early from the family vacation. You can't do anything right. Persecutors like to feel superior. Yeah, victims. Victims, they disparage themselves. They feel helpless and hopeless. They feel... They rejected. Sometimes they manipulate. They feel, I can't do it on my own. They feel sorry for themselves. And they avoid responsibilities. Which then confirms the fact that they are inferior. The rescuer disparages other people's skills. Takes care of people without being asked. Let me help you. You can't do it on your own. Let me jump in. Sometimes being helpful is a way of being superior. The triangle is meant to show us that human motivation is often driven by this three-pole drama, first learned in the system of the family and then extended to other areas of our lives. And so we might see Hagar is going to switch from victim to persecutor and then back to victim. The victim then becomes the persecutor. They're looking for a rescuer. Strangely, in a way, you might wonder why Avraham is not rescuing. You wouldn't be alone. Avraham consults with God, and God says, don't become the rescuer. That's, you will be falling into a trap. One might wonder why anyone would want to be a victim or even want to be a persecutor, but they're learned young, and we're driven in no small measure by wanting validation for who we are. When you know your role, it's highly validating. In the, satis- in the triangle, we satisfy some needs like being recognized and being seen, being stimulated by the exchange and getting confirmation of who we are. And at the same time, the interaction structures our time. And it has to do with our relationship to time. For a while, we are being busy in an activity full of twists and turns, like the Yosef and Hagar stories. Through our role in the triangle, we gain something, human contact. Attention, validation, a sense of familiarity, and through that, a kind of comfort. We find a place of safety. Even if the dynamic always leads to conflict, guilt, resentment, and feeling stuck in our lives. But we've mastered our role, we're good at it, even if it means we're being inauthentic. And our relationships within the triangle seem so intimate, but they are essentially ones of distance and of inauthenticity. We turn to someone to be our rescuer, 
a boss, a coworker, a new romantic partner, sometimes they're not aware of the new role we've just assigned them. We're not really in relationship with them, even though it feels close. We are in relationship with the role we've transferred onto them. It's actually a way of distancing people. A couple of examples to get in our heads. A parent wishes for their child to feel safe and protected and to be spared pain. Maybe like Yaakov, they keep them close to themselves rather than gradually experiencing conflict and resiliency with their brothers. The child is taught to be especially aware of slights, of put-downs, of unfairness, and quickly learns to call things out in the world and in their life as unfair. This is validated by the parent as noticing injustice in the world. Good job. They notice it in a teacher, this not being fair, or or a friend. And the parent rushes in to rescue, right? Approaching the person in the office, the school counselor, the there's a problem here, you need to fix it. Or tells the child to go to the teacher. The child's validated for being a victim, parent validated as a rescuer. The world is full of persecutors who should be victims or allies who could be fellow rescuers. Or take an example of two parents getting divorced who have two children. Dealing with emotional trauma, one sibling becomes the emotional caretaker of the other. And the other is the one who's fragile, who needs taken care of. The older one is the one who takes over reading bedtime stories, and the younger one is the one who gets read to. But now they grow up. The one who was the rescuer is the golden child, the independent one, the smart one, right? They're the rescuer. They're in that role. They suppress their feelings of not being able to control what needs to be controlled in their adult lives. Life can't be controlled, but I must. In fact, maybe it makes them feel better to call up and rescue others. For a time, they feel better. Meanwhile, the one who was the victim is struggling. They're the feeling one, the fragile one. Maybe they have unsatisfying relationships. The career dreams are out of reach. They call their sibling. They find sympathetic friends who tell them that's not their fault. That boss is lousy. That romantic partner wasn't worthy of you. Right? So, like, they're looking for rescuers. They get validation. Through therapy, they realize that they play their family role in life and they break the pattern. They take control of their life. I don't have to be rescued by my friends, by my older sibling. I'm going to figure out what I want in life, what the promise is there for me. What is it that I have that I can create this year that has arrived, this project I want to do at work, this way I want my friendships to be. And you know what will happen? The others will react. What's wrong with you? Why are you cutting us off? Why are you showing distance? You've become different. What is wrong? Because how can they go on without being validated in their role? So the point of the triangles that roles change, and I hope as we explore our relationships and head into the year, and we could do a, we could do a Shabbaton on this alone. I could take you through all the different ways, because I love systems transactional therapy. It's helped me understand how we're in roles and how we can break out of them. But the point is the roles change. The victim stops being a victim. They are shifted in energy to being a rescuer. Now we're a persecutor. For example, the persecutor parent is now old and needing care. So the persecutor parent now is a victim. But now, of those two children, 
right? Because there was a persecutor and then the rescuer and then the fragile one, the victim. But now the parent needs taken care of, so they have to be the victim. So then which of the other two is going to be the rescuer? And who's going to be the persecutor? So one, one says, I'll, I'll take care. The other one says, whoa, 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 whoa. Who told you you can take over? I want to weigh in. Or the classic codependent dynamic of the rescuer and victim. I know everyone else has given up on you, but your alcoholism is not your fault. You can call me and I'll pick you up and drive you home. And one day we'll beat this. We move in and out of these roles. As David Emerald explains in The Power of the Empowerment Dynamic, rescuers and persecutors have a natural fluidity. The Yosef story is an extended story played out in time. Protected by his father, he has the role of the special but fragile one. He exhibits his role not just in his coat but in his dreams. And the brothers persecute him, and the father is the rescuer. And one day the triangle is disrupted. Yaakov, or perhaps God working through him, does not rescue Yosef, who has gone to be with his brother. Yosef is victimized, and off he goes into slavery. And what the triangle would dictate is that Yosef would seek a new rescuer. A candidate appears, Potiphar, but he's victimized and thrown into prison, and he doesn't reach out for either Potiphar or another rescuer. And maybe he has never been seeking vengeance all along. What he asks is, what do I want my life to be? If you're with the therapist and they said, you hit it. You understand the role you've been playing. So what do I do now? One simple question. What do you want to create in your life? You mean I'm not talking about my sibling right now? You mean I'm not talking about my... No, we covered that. What do you want to create? Joseph knew what he wanted to create, and we perceive it as, nope, he must have been becoming a persecutor to get revenge, but it's all good in the name of tshuva. Tshuva itself is about identifying what you want in your life, what will give it meaning before the divine decree, Realizing what you have, ma'lach, that you can make it happen with, and breaking out of the victim dynamic. To me, this is what High Holy Days are all about. I'm caught up in the dynamics of the triangle. My life is spent moving among the roles of victim. I can't do what I want to do because they won't let me. Well, I would do that, but... You know, that person will complain, or um, I would do that, but I'm not sure we have all the people we need, or the reason that project didn't work out is I can probably say it was that person's fault, and that's fine. None of it's creating. All of that could be replaced by just saying, okay, next step. What do we want to create? What do we want to create at Beth Israel? Forget with, I can't do what I want to do with my family because I'm too busy the demands at work are too much, right? I need more help. None of that leads to just the simple talking to the angel and answering a question, what do you want to create? And what do you have that you can use to do it? And when you start doing that, you're going to find yourself in relationship with God because you're going to find, wait a second, I didn't know, I don't know, let's say we want to have, I want to have singing. And then, wait a second, 
I just got a call from Neil, right? Maybe I want the, you know what? I just met someone at the Trader Joe. And I, this actually happened to me. I mean, I'll give you an example. Which I, mean, I was talking to someone about, if I could do anything, what would I do? Well, one thing I would do is I would have Kirtan Shabbat. And we do Jewish prayers to Hindu chants. And right then I was uh, checking. It was like that day. I was checking for, I had to get a doctor. And I clicked on the first one that was like randomly assigned to me by my healthcare provider. And of course, I Googled his name. And it turned out that his big thing is Kirtan. And he has a Jewish last name. I just talked about creating this weird, interesting musical Shabbat, and the universe provided me a guy with a Jewish last name, and his passion is kirtan, according to the doctor website. That's what happens when you break free of the dynamic and move forward. The roles we play in the dynamic are not truly who we are, and we're not truly in relationship with the people when we're in that dynamic, but those roles are hard to escape. They prevent real relationship. They prevent us from seeing ourselves and others for who we truly are. They prevent us from fulfilling life's real purposes as taught by Torah. And this happens also at a society level. I'm going to share one observation from one of my favorite philosophers, Martha Nussbaum. Her most recent book is called Citadels of Pride, Sexual Abuse, Accountability, and Reconciliation. And she writes about the Me Too movement Some people not only ask for equal respect, but seem to take pleasure in retribution. Instead of a prophetic vision of justice and reconciliation, they prefer an apocalyptic vision in which the former oppressor is brought low, and this vision parades as justice. She says in an interview, Me Too has helped win accountability. But the fact that so much of the movement is social rather than legal creates a problem. How to secure justice and protect equal dignity when punishment is meted out, not by impartial legal institutions, but by shaming and stigmatization. Her point being that she identifies and sees the strength of the victim naming the persecutor in all kinds of ways that even go beyond to the point of talking of toxic masculinity overall as a phenomenon that stains our society like a sin. But what she asks is, does that create something that helps people? Does that create Title IX? Does that create legal recourse? Does that do what people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Aleha Shalom did? by creating mechanisms that are legal to protect rights and to give people recourse when they are victimized. And so she honors accountability, but she won't name it, as she puts it, prophetic justice and reconciliation. Our culture is steeped in making a virtue of assigning blame with little analysis of whether this leads to structural change. We are told to recognize all the intersecting ways people are unconscious victims and unconscious persecutors as necessary precursors to understanding ourselves and each other. But it is not clear to me whether we are fostering authentic relationship or preventing them by entering the security of the blame dynamic. 
Blame fills our life with drama. Blame feels really important. Blaming our society for its original sins that are not overcomable. Insisting for a weak awakening of its, of its inherent evil. Does it lead to liberation? Yes, it feels important. Because crying out about the persecutor feels important. Does it give us authentic identity before God? Or does it leave something empty inside? How does it lead to a different future? So that in the High Holy Day liturgy's words, so that life is good for, your, for you, your children, and your children's children. There's a lot of blame for previous generations, and I find it strange. It sounds indisputable that our generations messed up the planet. Our generation was sexist. We were homophobic, we, or we still are. We're racist. But every generation has all sides working at the same time. Calling a generation to blame is aligning together the simple observation that they passed on problems, but with the, pers- with the perspective that they are persecutors. High Holy Days tells us that we're all to blame. The community is always in a state of needing radical change and improvement. That is what Mahuyot, Zichronot, and Shofarot are about. In the process of tshuva, it's not being shamed. It's not being given the chance to do some confession in pain of eternal damnation. In the process of tshuva, we identify our shortcomings in the past to empower ourselves through our closeness with God to create something different. This is a state of awe because it means letting go of our expectations of what the past needed to have been so we can be in the present moment to create what we want for the future. We do not need to stand in the place of blame of ourselves or others. We connect with our God-given ability to create a future different, a different future, out of the unchanging values that the Torah bequeaths to us in Malchuyot, out of those of our ancestors who did their part to activate in it, the society, to activate it in the societal body, in Zichronot. And now us. What is the shofar calling us to create? As the angel is calling to us, when you're in that mindset, what do you have to create from? The time for repentance, says, said Rabbi Kalanimus Kamish Shapira, the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto, on Rosh Hashanah in 1941. The time for tshuva is Rosh Hashanah, the anniversary of the creation of the world. For repentance is also a creative act. What will we be creating this year in our lives and in our society? Shana Tovah.